I'm Bill Wilson, and along with my friend Jim Gibson, I started a little punk label called Blackout Records in 1989. Over the years, we've released records from H2O, Killing Time, Sheer Terror, Killy Riddles, Dead Guy, The New Bomb Turks, and many more. The Mad at the World podcast is a collection of conversations with our bands and extended family who have great stories to tell about their records, their art, the road, and growing up against the grain. Before we get started with this first episode, I wanted to point out that this was recorded in late 2020, just after the passing of Blackout co-founder Jim Gibson, and just prior to the unexpected loss of Breakdown and Killing Time's Rich McLaughlin. This episode, and really all of them, are dedicated to their memory. It's only fitting that we're kicking off this first episode of Mad at the World with Carl and Drago from Breakdown and Killing Time, because without them, the label probably would never have existed. On top of that, Carl and I have been friends ever since we were toddlers, so we've been part of the good, the bad, and the fugly in each other's lives for, you know, four decades plus. So let's get to it. Carl, you come from a musical family. How did that wind up with you discovering music, playing guitar, and playing guitar in a hardcore band? Well, yeah, my family had a, had a, a history of being in sort of a, you know, Italian string bands, uh, bands that would you know play at the uh, at the feasts and so on and so forth. Mandolin, uh, uh, guitar. Um, they would have that sort of big bass guitar that looks like a large acoustic guitar that you kind of sometimes see uh, mariachi bands ha- play. They had a uh, Italian version of that. So that's like, that's my grandfather and uh, my uncle uh, brought all that, brought all that to me and educated me about that. I, I still have my, uh, my uh, grandfather's mandolin, which is a, a prized possession of mine. Shall learn to play at some point. But um yeah, I mean that that's that, that's the musical that's the musical history and having my my uncle there as a as a guy who was uh, uh really excited about the guitar even though the music that he played uh just just seemed uh so far to me just having someone there kind of egging me on was a uh, was was pretty cool uh in the beginning and you know just in terms of uh of uh of uh, you know other musical interest, interest uh, like like uh, influences. My, my I was exposed to a lot of country music uh, from my parents. You know, my 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 dad uh, was a uh, was a was a huge uh, um, Dixieland jazz guy. But I guess like in the war and in the fifties and sixties, he became sort of a big Johnny Cash and George Jones guy. So that that's something I. I started with young and that's something that kind of sticks with me, but, uh, for, 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 for the music that got me, you know, close to rock and roll metal and ultimately hardcore, you know, the, the, the first, the first, you know, shot across the bow, uh, of <laughs> that made me, my ears per- perk up and, uh, would, you know, had to be kiss. And, uh, that was, uh, that was like the first, uh, revolution of, uh, influences. Yeah, I remember um, when we were in seventh grade, you know, or, you know, your mom rolling up in her bright yellow Dodge Charger (laughs) with 
Amazing I, car. I forgot, what was the radio station? Um, it was like it wasn't even WKHK. It was like, oh, the, oh, the country station. Yeah, WHN. I think that's what it was. It's probably an yeah. AM station. Yeah. I mean, just, I remember like all of a sudden, like getting in the car with those like plush white vinyl seats <laughs> and like going off to like seventh grade in this larger, like <laughs> cranking like the Kenny Rogers. Or the yeah. Valley yeah. Park. Yeah. The pop, the, the, the late seventies, like pop uh, country stuff. Yeah, and the, yeah, Kenny yeah, Rogers, the Olivia Newton, John and uh, yeah. John Denver. Yeah, Charlie Pride. He died this week. The, Rest yeah. in peace. So Drago, yeah, you know, how, did you, how did you get started in this whole in in, in music <laughs> and playing the drums? It's funny that you guys are talking about the you know, the country music thing because that's all we grew up with early. Like that's all my mom would listen to, and you know, like the seventies variety shows and stuff like that was like full of country music. I remember like in when I was like a kindergarten or whatever, I was playing some ball down at a playground. Some kid asked me, like an older kid asked me if I like rock or disco. And I was like, nah, I like country. Like, I'm <laughs> out of here. You know, it's like the same thing. It's funny. My mom used to go to garage sales and like, just get records, you know, that people had in bins. So we had like older stuff, you know, I mean, older stuff, but you know, like 60s stuff, like Harmon's Harmits. And um, there was like Johnny Cash live at Folsom prison and a lot of Bob Dylan records I grew up with listening to and and that and country radio and stuff it wasn't until like maybe i was around maybe 11 years old my brother started listening to like van halen and acdc and acdc just clicked with me i thought that that was the greatest band in the world and that's that pretty much the band that i like you know started learning how to play drums to you know i would just listen to a lot of phil rudd i had my first little kit that i conned my dad into buying for me i told him i knew how to play already and then we went to the, some strange guy's house and bought a four-piece kit for like i don't know how much it was at the time but it was like you know too much for my dad to afford and we set it up in my basement and i couldn't play shit and he was just like i guess you're gonna work on that so. <laughs> did uh you know i just remember like there was a, a very clear dividing line between me as like a non-music person and me being like, holy shit, what is this? And it was seeing Kiss on the Paul Lind Halloween special. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. I was like, holy fuck, what is this? Because like it had all the aspects of like what a like eight-year-old boy in the 70s would want. It's like fire, explosions, Blood. some demon dude, fucking loud stuff going on. It was great. Do you guys have any like of those like TV moments, like the Don Kirchner rock concert kind of shit that you would like find out that kind of blew your mind, like when you were a kid, or was it like Drago? You said your brother turned you basically onto the music. Yeah. Was, was there like, any like like seminal moment for you? Well, I I, I I actually I related this in the past, but it was like really the the, the punk turn on was like a, a rock palace show that I saw with the Circle Jerks playing, and. uh you know, Chuck Biscuits was playing with them at the time. And I was just like, you know, I, I watched drummers play before, but when I saw him come out and he was all over that kit and the music was just blaring and like right at like primetime TV hour, I was like, this is crazy. I was like, you know, I think we went, me and my friend Dave went to uh, Mad Platters the next day. I picked up uh, Golden Shower Hits. He picked up Angry Samoans, uh, you know, Back from Samoa. And that's what got me off the metal tip right into punk and hardcore. 
and that was a TV show. Yeah, that's real. That's really interesting. How, especially where we grew up, right? And for social context, it's kind of weird because there must be something in the water in Westchester, because like culturally, even in the eighties, it was still like desperately fucking hanging on to the seventies. In a lot yeah. of ways, like a lot of the habits were like you know drinking beers in the parking lot, listening to rock. Like was like a very that seventies show kind of hang. It wasn't necessarily like you know, what you would picture in a John Cusack movie. I mean, yeah, you were only going to, you were only going to kind of uh, uh, experience so much, hear so many new things. If you were, if you were in the, if you were, if you were in the schoolyard, you know, drinking beers with like Led Zeppelin playing, you, you really weren't going to, you really weren't going to get much more than, uh, than, than Groundhog Day. And then, you know, you, you know, you you kind of walk into the local record store, and there it does uh, it does open kind of vistas for you. You know, when you just see, you know, because music is so central to everything as 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 a teenager that when you just get exposed to suddenly all these different styles of music, and it uh, it opens up your eyes and makes you wanna, you know, I mean, in the case of uh, like what you say about Westchester, I think the fact that you could hop on a on a bus or a subway or, or a commuter train and end up being uh, in the city where all kinds of stuff was happening. That's really, uh, I think that's probably what kind of fed that like little, that little small vein of punk rock rebellion that you would, uh, that, you know, where we all found each other uh, in, in, yeah. Western, in Yonkers. And, and Plains. Yeah. And the record stores were just like, I mean, I think between, you know, Gibson, Joey, I, Tony, Sue, um, you know, even even Joel, you know, you know, even though he was kind of like not, you know, he was he was adu- an adult when we were buying records. Yeah, at his store. but he provide he, he provided the uh, he provided the space for all that stuff to happen, you know? Yeah. Yeah. He was, a mean, big, he was a big he was a big music fan. And like, you know, it's like even the younger people, you know, the uh, the. The record store people the, the, who would be hipping you to stuff that they thought you like may, didn't always have the same taste as you. So it was like, you know, it was just that, 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 that's, that, that was the job, you know, you know, this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I remember Jim Gibson being the motorhead guy, you know, yeah. um, you know, I remember, um, you know, Tony, you know, always pushing the sisters of mercy and the misfits and kind of like, I would never have heard those bands, you know, He's, you know, I, I credit Tony and I do it all the time with, you know, Tony and the, the, the people in the stores, but especially Tony, you know, being kind of the Pied Piper of fucking weirdness. Well, Tony gave me my first, you know, mixtape. One of the first times I was in here, he was like, if you if you want to check out like all, all these bands in one one, uh, you know, in one tape, here you go. And he, it was like a crazy list of, of Bad Brains was on it misfits uh black flag white flag like a bunch of stuff that i never heard of and it was kind of just compiled for me as like a like a a little uh you know tutorial here to get me into stuff and that that was one of the first things i picked up at the record stop i was like my friends were getting more and more you know out of the mainstream metal stuff and you know we started listening to uh Metallica and things were getting a little bit more like hectic and a little bit more uh, crazy. And it was harder to find that type of music. And that's why, you know, it led us to these different stores and stuff. I had to 
take the 20 bus to Yonkers to go to Mad Platters for the first time. (laughs) I'd get on a bus and drive for miles, you know, out of White Plains. Guys, I didn't didn't grow up in Yonkers and we took it all the way, all the way up there. I was like, how the hell, what if I, you know, I can't get back, you know, what if happens, something happens to me out here, but I didn't care, you know? It was cool. You were also younger too. Like, what were you yeah. like, thirteen and or twelve when you were doing that? Yeah, well, I was. Yeah, probably around. But I had to be like fifteen, maybe. You know, I could just. I got a fifteen-year-old now. I don't let him leave the house, and I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm yeah. traipsing around, going everywhere. You know, taking transfers on buses, <laughs> go here and go there. You know, you know something about uh, about record stores and mad platters too. There's like I, I mentioned. Uh, I mentioned before how being exposed to kiss at a young age was like a revolution moment in terms of sound and energy and, and style. And, uh, a similar, similar moment happened in, in mad platters. When I heard victim, when I heard victim from, from AF, like, uh, like that record victim in pain was on the wall. And I and <laughs> I don't know if one of us bought it or we asked to hear it, but that shit fucking blew up my it blew up my head and blew up, and, and, and blew up so many ideas of of what I thought you know music was supposed to, it was supposed to be, and you know I, I wouldn't have heard that I wouldn't have heard that if I wasn't hanging around a, a place like like Mad Platters I yeah. never would have been exposed to it, um, and. And we wouldn't have a band, maybe, you know, like, you know, how would I know Drago? I mean, he was, you know, a, a couple of grades, a couple of grades younger than me. And he lived uh, in White Plains, which was half an hour away. If, if, if it wasn't like, uh, you know, the, the, the people, those those record store people that we talk about weren't only, you know, connecting you with music that you might like, but they were connecting you with people. And uh that yeah. was, that, we met, that we was met, totally we met Drago because he was, I, I think it was maybe Tony or maybe Sue, one of those two that, that yeah, connected it was, us. It was, it was Tony. I used to hang out. You remember they used to have like the, they had like a little bulletin board in the front of the shop at, at the record stop, <clears throat> you know, like bassist wanted, drummer wanted, yeah, this, yeah. that, whatever. And he used to always catch me look at it. And he said, to me, Tony says to me, he goes, you know, what do you, what do you play? And I said, I, I play drums. And he goes, well, how are you, you know, how long you've been playing? I said, oh, you know, a few years I play, you know, some stuff with some guys in high school. And he was like, well, I know these guys that are uh, starting a hardcore band in Yonkers and uh, they're really good and uh, they're looking for a drummer. And I was just like, at that point, I was just like, not, not enough confidence to be like, oh yeah, I'll reach out to them. But I, you know, he caught me looking at the bulletin board and I never did it. And he pushed it even further and he went, to uh i think he went to don or carl or something and said there's a kid that comes in here like once a week and uh he always seems to be you know he's interested in this he's, he listens to this and you know maybe he might work out so that was a total tony hookup yeah that was that, that's amazing stuff right, so don was one of the ne'er-do-well metal kids that we hung out with you know all through all through high school and then you know, as we all got into like heavier, crazier forms of music and then, you know, started going to matinees, um, you know, over the summer, Don and I met Rich at uh, at the, the public pool that we worked at. And how would you not and how would you not meet Rich? <laughs> I mean, he was the only kid. He was the only, <laughs> he was the only kid at the uh, at Sprayed Ridge public pool at Yonkers with it with 
with a giant mohawk. That's that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Don is not shy, so he's like, oh, who are you? You know, <laughs> and like he was wearing like he was probably wearing the um, you know, like the uh, the, the bleached jeans thing. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they probably bonded over that. I think Rich was wearing probably doinks and combat boots while he was on the pool deck. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that started. And then, you know, I, I personally remember kind of like, you know, that first breakdown practice, even before Jeff, with that original that original lineup with no vocalist, right? It right, was in Rich's right. garage. The first breakdown practice was in Rich's garage. I I I think we I think we met Jeff through either Tony or Sue as well probably. Oh yeah, without question, Jeff was another records you know, uh, Rock and Rex record ya- stop. Yonkers crew met the, met the met the Nourishell singer, yep. and then we added the White Plains drummer all through uh, all through the, all through the magic of the independent punk rock record store. And do you remember the first breakdown song that you actually wrote? Oh. Well, you and Don, I guess, right? Because uh, well, maybe I don't know what that was. To be honest with you, I don't remember what song it was. Maybe "Life of Bullshit." I'm not sure. Yeah, because you wrote the lyrics to that, right? I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there was no one else in the band to do it. <laughs> I was thinking we had no, we had no, we had uh, we had no singer. I, I, maybe. Rich might have tried to sing a little bit or something. I don't remember exactly uh, what we did before Jeff came along, but it wasn't that. It, it was a very short period of time. So you found Jeff. You found you know. So it was like you and Don. You found you found Rich. You found Jeff. Um, the first drummer was not working out, so you found Drago. And then you know, after writing that basically the demo, you guys found your ways to playing that first show in the rough seedy borough of Mamaroneck, New York at the church. Yeah. We managed to, uh, shut the show down within, <laughs> within probably, probably, uh, 120 seconds. <laughs> just, just end. We, we just started playing and then the whole, the whole, the whole gig was over. <laughs> all the chaperones ran out and gra- grabbed all the kids who were, <laughs> Who were moshing in the church in the church hall in Larchmont? That was it. Was over. It felt like a triumph, to be honest with you. I mean, if you're going to have one show, you might, if you're going to have the first show, it might as well be that. It was you guys in the Zombie Squad, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they got to play. They got to play their whole set, and everyone enjoyed it. And then we went up there and game over. It's instantly game over. There are a couple pictures though. That, yeah, that people went a little. I guess they went a little sick. <laughs> That's when I had like a, I had a double. I brought like uh, two bass drums to that show. I remember jamming them in Chris Cotter's uh, station wagon. Oh man, yeah, that didn't last long. And then it was kind of like you guys played that show, and it seemed. I mean, in my head, it could have been years, but it was really like the span of a year that you guys became recorded the demo, played a bunch of shows. I don't even remember if you played Seabuse or the Anthrax first. I don't even remember like what the order of shows was, but it just seemed like Seabuse C- like- was was very much uh, our our last show um, together as uh, as that unit of five. Um, we couldn't get a show in New York, which was we, we couldn't we we couldn't we could we could play in we could play uh, in Albany. We could play 
uh, in Connecticut. We could play in Long Island. Uh, but uh, yeah, we play. We probably. I think we played ten or eleven shows sort out of town, so to speak. I mean, before uh, uh, Ray Bees and Ray Capo uh, uh, called us and, and offered us uh, a show at the Pyramid. I, I, you know, we were such, we were so like just, you know, not like, you know, we weren't getting booked in, in any in the scene. The scene was not booking any shows for us. So when like when Ray when when Ray B's actually called Don's house, Don thought it was a, a prank phone call and hung up on him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then he called back. <laughs> That's great. Like, so, yeah, you almost don't believe it. It's like, uh, okay, yeah, nice try. You're very funny. <laughs> and, and that was show, and, and Drago's going to uh, help me here, but that show is, I think, uh, altercation, side yeah. by side. And maybe that was it. Maybe it's just those three bands. I, I think that's YDL. Maybe, was it YDL? No, nah, maybe not. Nah. I don't know. Somebody but recently guys, posted that. But, like, it was weird because, like, you guys – you know, recorded the demo again in Westchester, right? And you guys, you know, it, it's interesting that, you know, really there was nobody who was part of like, you guys would go to CB shows and you'd be around and you, you know, you knew a lot of people going to matinee shows and you're always at shows, but like you guys weren't part of the fabric of like the LES culture, right? Mm. You know, like no, you we were fucking, shows, you'd go to Westchester shows kids. Yeah. The, yeah. The first time, the first time we played CBs was the first time that I stepped inside that club. <laughs> it was the first time I stepped inside that club. I had a, like a fake ID made up. I was six, 16 at the time. And I didn't know what, you know, what the rules were. I had like a, a school ID that I altered to admit, you know, to say I was 17 or eight. I don't know what the hell I put on it, but it was like, nobody gave it. Nobody give a fuck. I, I walked in with the bass drum on my head and there was just like, here, there you go. Go set up. I was like, all right, that's cool. That was the first time I stepped in there. Did you drink a beer at the show? Oh yeah, definitely. A beer? A beer? <laughs> I'd say that, no, I'd say that didn't happen. Many. was. But, so, so Anthony, you know, meeting meeting the guys in, you know, meeting uh, Mike Sankowitz and Anthony, you know, the, the story's been told before, you know, but for those who are uninitiated, you know, how did you see Meet Token, you know, Anthony, you know, either during token entry or after, and then, you know, talk about that a little bit. Well, I think Carl did the 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 introduction to Anthony and the first time he walked into my dad's garage was the first time I think, I mean, I've seen him, I guess it shows before, but it was the first time that we actually met, but yeah. we had never stopped. Like, you know, as soon as breakdown broke up, it was, I had one phone call from Don saying that the band was over um, in its current lineup and me and Jeff want you to stay with us because rich and carl are breaking off and then i swear it was a half an hour later carl called me and said the band's breaking up me and rich are together <laughs> this is great <laughs> and we want you to play drums and i was just like all right and i just <laughs> said i gave carl a thumbs up and i called don back and said that uh it wasn't gonna happen um, that's amazing 
yeah, Carl was writing all the all the killer stuff, you know, in in my eyes, and we had the a better rapport between the three of us. Um, I thought, and I also had some some little thing in the back of my head that maybe I could start writing some lyrics in this yeah. new band. Shuttle and blast. It, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> one didn't go over too well, but um, <laughs> but uh, it worked out, you know. Like I, I got what I wanted and, uh, but we, we just, we, we started meeting the next week right after breakdown broke up and we felt like we had so much momentum and, and, and we're writing music and playing shows and we yeah, just we, I, played the best show of our lives at, at CB's and suddenly we're not a band anymore. And like, why are we a band anymore? Like I, we, it's still confusing to this day and I don't want to get into it, but like, it was just a, personal conflict like that that happened and uh you tell that story about like we had we had the music for telltale as breakdown yeah right we, did. we played I, it we played I, it at cbs yeah so if we played it at cbs instrumentally um yeah I, and, and i wrote the lyrics for telltale so that was within you know within weeks of of the breakup you know I, anthony was sitting right there on the stage too when we played it instrumentally <laughs> it's kind of funny um but uh yeah so we we played that one show and you know i mean calling call, calling steve to, to fill in for us was, was was fun and he was a friend and everything but i guess we all we all realized that you know that wasn't going to be the next thing so then we then we stopped using the name and and uh shortly after we got we got anthony and we we uh we bargained, we kind of bargained for Anthony. We, 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 you know, we knew him from, uh, from seeing him at shows and so and hanging out at some records and all that. And, uh, so we were like breakdown DC for like one show, <laughs> but then, but then we, we didn't even, we didn't even account for Mike, you know, we, yeah. Anthony just showed up and he brought, he brought Mike along with him. So then uh, suddenly, well, okay, this guy, this guy can play. You know, I guess we're a five piece. Yeah. I guess we're five. You know? <laughs> That's pretty good. Um, yeah. So and then, that, like, you almost kind of followed the same plan, right? You wrote a demo. That's what um, you did. I mean, we, don't give us too much credit for, for coming up with some kind of plan, but that's like, that's what it, every band did at that time. To some degree, probably still does. But you didn't play a lot of shows before the demo. Like, what was different is you kind of you kind of went in and did a recording almost like without playing a shitload of shows. Like, I, I think, and the difference is, is like, wasn't like, you know, Raw Deal's first show either the Anthrax or CBs. I think it was CBs, yeah, and I think it was like I, I, maybe with Absolution and uh, I feel like it, I feel like we played our first practice uh, the day after Thanksgiving in 1987. And our first gig was probably at CB's in January or February of, of uh, 88. Yeah. I mean, all, you know, we just, we were just writing stuff and um, yeah. Like Drago said, he was, uh, he was writing a lot of lyrics. I think Anthony had some lyrics left over from token entry. And so the songs came together quick and like, you know, breakdown had paid their breakdown had paid their dues, like playing all over and like you know not getting any, not getting any shows in the city and like. But by that point, you know, we were playing CBs, 
And Anthony was well known around the scene. So it was like the minute we were ready to play, play a gig, we had a gig. And then those demos started sounding like hell out of some records. Yeah. Yeah. And that's crazy. And that was the, obviously the, the raw deal demo. And then, you know, that's kind of when, and I don't really, you know, it's weird. I don't remember when, where the wild things are came out or kind of the impetus, like, you know, the timeline between, you know, when you recorded for where the wild things are and between the demo and the, and that, and the order of the compilations that came out as well. Like it's all kind of a blur because it all happened within like the span of basically like two years, if not yeah, less. It is. We, I would tr- try to pinpoint down this timeline from, you know, the beginning of breakdown to like, you know, well-established raw deal. And it was seriously like a, a year. You know what I'm saying? It, it's, it's crazy to think about it because back then it was just, it seemed like forever. You know, we were doing this for a long time and it was, it was, it was nothing. It's like a, yeah, it's, it, it seems, it seemed back then it seemed like it took forever. Like I remember like putting the masters together for where the wild things are and being like, Oh, I'm going to, it's going to wait. And I thought it was like, it felt like two years to me to put all the records together, you know, and get all the masters from people, but it took a few months. So, you know, when, when Jim and I finally decided to do it, it was, it was, it was pretty quick. And, you know, you know, between, you know, breakdown mark two, um and you guys you guys were like the anchor tenants for like this this compilation and it was easy because i knew everybody in in both both the bands so you know let's talk a little bit about so you guys how did you guys get signed to in effect records how did that actually come about well that th- that brings up a whole lot of stuff because yeah strangely um the 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 offer the the entree the 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 introduction to uh to to uh in effect uh, records uh came into uh mike mike hellfire sequence as we like to call him and uh at the time he was going through a little bit of a, a musical crisis which is Something that we all go through uh, uh, as as creators of music and players, and uh, so I, I, to 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 tell you how they approached him or how that went down, I don't know. I just do know that he presented us to it. To uh, he presented the idea to us um, as something horrible because <laughs> um, he just did not have any interest in. Um, committing himself to hardcore because he had sort of other ideas of what he wanted to do in music. So, yeah, uh, he um, was like the first guy to double down on Guns N' Roses, I think. Right. It's strange. Well, I mean, listen, you know, when Guns N' Roses recorded that, um, uh, was it Welcome to the Jungle or Sweet Child of Mine? I don't know. Whatever video they recorded at the Ritz, that that was filled with New York hardcore kids. You know, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how that, that happened. I, I, I don't, I don't know if I got the memo. I don't think I did, but yeah, I mean, he was at that and uh, yeah, I mean, that sort of uh, changed his uh, trajectory. I mean, 
you know, yeah. not to speak not not to speak too much about Mike, but you know, I mean, after that happened, the next band he ended up in is was Nausea, so uh, that might have been a temporary blip in his uh, in, in, uh, in, in his radar. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, he he had already talked to us and and said you know that he'd like to go in a different direction with the music, and we kind of were. It was it was very much like what kind of, kind of yeah. a conversation when, when he went. Yeah. When he brought it, when he brought it up to us that we should be a little bit more like Guns N' Roses. <laughs> it was really not a, not what we were thinking at all. Um, but, you know, at the time, at the time, you know, that there was other there was other labels that were talking to us about doing things. So it wasn't uh it, it wasn't this shocking a thing. It was just like a, sort of another, uh, another little thing that kind of came into our, uh, uh, into our, into our universe. I mean, we were already doing something. I believe we had already talked about recording the two tracks for you. You know, there was talk from, I don't know, was a giant record. There was a lot, you know, there's a lot of, there was a lot of labels kind of that kind of suddenly were waking up to the idea that like, you know, New York hardcore was uh, was somehow viable for for their business interests. Um, maybe, maybe because so many people were coming to the shows, but yeah, pe- people were talking to us. Um, we also went through the Chris Williamson. Yes, I, yeah, I mean that was part of it. Yeah, that was part of it. That was yeah, that was yeah. I mean, he talked to us. Uh, he talked to us about going on uh, on uh, on profile records, and, and, and our meeting with him was nothing short of completely strange um yeah like we, we we did we like performed for him that was yeah that was really weird yeah we went well, into uh, we went into one of these fancy you know showcase rehearsal rooms with him and he and you know he stood there and and uh he was reading the magazine the whole time critiqued us or like you know it was yeah he was mostly quiet which is weird yeah. Then at the end, he had some things to say, and uh, yeah, it was. It was it, I don't think anyone felt good about that, especially you know, especially Anthony. You know, being such a hardcore purist, I think they just the whole idea of like, you know, having to uh, audition for this for this guy w- w- was uh, something that made him, um, that filled him with, uh, with with unease and you know, rage boiling underneath the surface. <laughs> <laughs> what so so eventually i guess it was you know like uh the in effect guys who kind of like showed you i guess you guys went out to the office and met them and it seemed like a good fit because sick of it all was also signing there and and prong Prong was there you know of course tony you know tommy victor was was someone that you know had 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 mixed us at cbs a number of times yeah it was like there was a familiarity amongst, uh, you know, the people, the people over there, you know, you know, Steve had played, uh, had played in, uh, in, uh, in AF for a minute, you know, you know, Howie was a generally all around kind of like nice engaging guy, you know, brain, the art guy hung out at CBs with us, you know, it was like, a, it, 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 it didn't feel like we were stepping into a, a, a corporate office for sure. Let's, uh, let's say that at least. Like all this shit between the raw deal demo breakdown becoming successful, the raw deal demo just ha- you know happening and kind of the, the the rapid success of the band to where 
well, the wild things are coming out was this two year blur, really, for everybody. And then, you know, it just kind of exploded, you know, for you guys where, you know, you signed to, you know, what was then like the, ooh, ah, major indie label, you know, and there was a big hubbub. And I think that there was this whole vision that like the band consciously changed its sound because you'll hear people even to this day talk about like, well, I liked them when they were raw deal, you know, and to, to me, it's a continuum. There is no difference, but some people like figure out it was like a grand strategic maneuver. It wasn't a grand strategic maneuver. No, we just kind of, you know, we were kids learning how to, learning how to play our instruments, learning how to fuck around with sound and gear and stuff. And like, that was just the progression of just another year of being a, of being someone who's in a band playing gigs. I mean, there was really, there was no calculation. That's for sure. I mean, even like we, we, we barely knew what the fuck we were doing when we made the demos. And when we went, when we went instantly from a two track live, two hour demo session to recording an album in a, like a 24 track professional studio, like we were, so far out of our depth, we had no, we had no, we had no clue what we were doing. So <laughs> any idea that we, uh, that we were, we were calculating and purposely trying to change our sound is, is absurd. Cause we were, all we were trying to do is just play our songs. That whole thing, like going from, uh, yeah, you talk about like a two track live and then, and then, going into like uh you know a pro recording studio um like that was it was a learning experience you know there was a, like we had to kind of let oh god was it ever let around you know like i showed up with my you know my blue monster yamaha uh touring kit and within like about it took us about two hours before i was told just put those drums aside and you're going to use the studio kit and you're going to stop drinking and <laughs> stop drinking stop hitting so many symbols i mean i don't know that first night when we went to normandy when we we pulled in there and and what's his name from uh, aerosmith is there and i don't know brad whitford about. was sitting behind the board yeah so the brad grand, our, our previous recording session was live was seven With songs Alexander. recorded live and mixed in the course of two hours and then we show up at the studio and Red Whitford from Aerosmith is sitting behind the desk, yeah, and I'm and, and he's in the back room, and I'm like floating in my shit, and he and I'm like I thought he was uh I thought he was like one of the techs and stuff or the intern or something. I'm like where do I put my shit, man? And he's like I don't know, I don't work here. So I was like oh fuck. So I I found out <laughs> later that night. I mean Tom Soares came up to us, and I guess to meet us. It was like me. I I, I think it was me and Carl got there first or whatever that we were just kind of sitting down and Tom Soares sat down with us just to kind of like meet and greet type stuff. And I was just like, yeah, I can't wait to get down, you know, get down there and I want to lay down the stuff. And then I just want to kind of relax, you know, and just kick back. And he's just like, you're not going to be relaxing here. And, I was like, <laughs> and he goes, no, he goes, we, he goes, hopefully we'll get through the drum tracks in the next, you know, whatever. But uh, yeah, he goes, that's a real bad attitude to start off with. You know, we're not here to relax. And I was like, oh, shit, I thought this was supposed to be fun. Yeah. He gets a lot of credit, that guy. 
yeah. for, for, for that record because well, you had to keep us all in line. The whole, the whole thing was like, yeah, we go from two track live and then we're in a place where, uh, you know, it's his realm. So we had to, we had to follow suit, you know, with that or else we would have been a total mess. Yeah. I mean, we, we were, we, we were green as a band and, and, uh, you know, our, our, our label people were, were green as label executives and, you know, it's like, all right, we'll just send these kids up. We'll send these kids up to the studio with no producer, no pre-production and they'll just make a record, you know? And, you know, Tom, Stor- Tom Soros was really just, you know, he was just the house engineer there, but he stepped into the role of being uh, the producer on the record and, and we worked together and it was harder work than we thought it could possibly be or could imagine it, it would be. And uh, yeah, he helped to shepherd, shepherd us through it. It was, uh, it was good to have him up there. I mean, you know, uh, there was a there was a residence above the above the studio. You know, it was just a lot of like, you know, kind of mattresses, Wait, bunk beds. And stuff. I, I got to interrupt you though because it, a residence. It was like it was garbage. Yeah. It was, it was like it was like people are probably envisioning listening to this. It was like a no. I mean, resident. I mean, anyone who's played in a band and has stayed in like a band room above a club knows the, like the, the, the like the utter like disgustingness of it. And like, but this was a step up from that. Like, just a step, just one, maybe a half step up from that. But I'm sure the Backstreet Boys had it filled with with with, with all, all all sorts of attractive young ladies. A Killing Time, as Killing Time did, wherever we went, it was filled with our boys. Our boys, our boys were there wherever we went, <laughs> and uh, you know, even though we were supposed to be working at the studio, our crew was there. And Bill, you were part of it. Yeah, yeah, it was like a bunch of like fat dudes from Yonkers on Long Island. Of, like, like that's what hardcore. That's that's basically the gift that hardcore gives, gives perpetually. <laughs> Is like, oh, look at this portly one, <laughs> and you know, and it's like four dudes, <laughs> every dude. It's like, oh, this is this is really great. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, it was fun because everybody was just you know breaking each other's balls and whatever it is, and obviously, you know, participating in the background vocals was is always fun. You know, to get to scream into the mic and see who can be loudest and more stupid in the gang vocals. But like, you know, with the recording session, how different was it? to go from two track live to the full spectrum of overdubs and, you know, having Tom really ride the shit out of you guys in the studio. Well, we had no, we had, we had no clue. I mean, we went in to record the breakdown demo, two hours total, whole band recording at once, you know, mixing, then mixing it for like 15 minutes or a half an hour, then leaving all psyched with your cassette tape. Same thing with the raw deal, real raw deal demo, demo. Same thing with the second raw deal demo. Then all of a sudden we're in the studio, you know, where the guy from Aerosmith is hang, hanging around, you know, the Backstreet Boys had recorded there. The illustrious Beaver John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band had recorded there. Uh, and we, no, we were we were well out of our depth, and uh, you know, it, 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 
the people that the people that were there were shocked that a bunch of I mean we listen we could play our songs you know we had the we had the energy we 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 know we knew what we meant we knew like what the songs were about and we were all about playing them and and, and we there wasn't any there, there wasn't any problem there but like in terms of just playing them in that level at a at a at a professional you know 24 track studio was not you know anything we uh we're used to. And the people at the studio were shocked that we didn't have a producer. Uh, and uh, because we hadn't done any pre-production, we hadn't, we just were a bunch of green dudes there ready to, ready to, ready to play some hardcore. And it, that, that was, that was a little bit of a, you know, that was a, that, 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 that caused a little bit of, of, of edginess between us and the label. I, I, I remember, I remember, I remember Anthony calling up the record label and just screaming at them about, why we were up there and we didn't have a producer. We don't know what we're doing. <laughs> like it was, uh, but you know what? At the end of the day, once we got past all that kind of crap and we realized we weren't going to be in there for three hours and record and come out with a record, we learned a, a, a shit ton. We learned a shit ton. We all learned a shit ton. And, and, and we made something that we're kind of still proud of like 30 years later. So fuck all the bullshit. I mean, we, 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 I, Drago got his ass fucking busted to shit. You know, I, I had this, you know, I like to this day, like, you know, like when you record, when you're recording guitar overdubs or when you're like doubling a rhythm track and I don't want to go into, you know, too, too deep in the weeds here, but when you're doing that kind of stuff, you, you know, you typically, you, you find a comfortable a place for that's comfortable for you. And that's part of what a producer or an engineer does, you know, and, and like, but in this session, they had me in a fucking glass box with four Marshall cabinets, two Marshall heads, doubling my rhythm tracks. And I was in there for, like everyone else in the band was out like at the beach or whatever the fuck they were doing. And I was just sitting. I was just sitting in there. I was sitting in there for like eight hours, like yes, it was endlessly. And, 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 and the guy, you know, the guys were like. The guys were like, "Oh, you know, AJ from Leeway got this done a lot quicker than you did." <laughs> like, 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 it was like, so I mean, you know, it's like we, it was, it was, you know, it was, it, it was, you know, tr- it was, uh, it, it was, it was trial by fire, and it was, uh, it, and it was a learning experience, and but, but it was a, a shit ton of fun, and it was like it created the document that our 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 our, our band is known for, you know, and that we still that that still is the reason we're still we're still talking to each other right now about it and playing shows and festivals and all that kind of stuff. You know, when you went, when you were in the booth where everybody was feeling for you because Sawyer sent us out, he said, you guys got to dis- disappear for like a couple hours until he's done with this because he's having a rough time. And we're like, all right, so where are we going to go? Like we're in like Warren, Rhode Island. There's nothing to do. So I don't know what, what we kicked around doing, but we, we made sure we didn't step back inside the studio for like a few hours. When we got back, Carl was still sitting in the same fucking spot. It was so loud in there, too. And I had never even tried to double a guitar before. I didn't even know what the concept of what doubling the shit that I already played was. I never thought that was even a thing. <laughs> but I found out. <laughs> so, Drago, and, and it's also like, you know, with Breakdown, you said that you never got a chance to write lyrics. But on Bright Side, you had an opportunity to write pretty much the majority of the lyrics. So where did that come from? And, you know, what are, what's some of the backstory 
behind some of like the anthems because I think that there's probably a lot of there are probably a lot of tracks that people probably misunderstand. Um, so what do you think like your most misunderstood lyric might be? The most, the most, the most misunderstood one on that. Oh man. I, what, what always gets me is like, we've played everywhere. And these, these are lyrics that I wrote when I was 17 years old, you know, and to hear them, you know, scream back with like such fury, you know, anywhere that we went, you know, Japan to, you know, people are screaming, you know, lyrics to backtrack bright side. And this is all stuff that I wrote completely alone, you know, and I guess that's where most of the lyrics kind of came from. Um, just kind of, uh, tried to look on the bright side, found out there isn't one. That's not, uh, it's not a suicidal song at all. That was pretty much um, me seeing no future in uh, a relationship that I was in. So I guess nobody sees the the uh, love aspect of that song at all. You guys had this re- record come out. You had all this enthusiasm about the record. You had, you know, these a lot of great reviews that came out about the record, a lot of expectations that you guys had about what your trajectory was. And then, you know, when you were offered tours, you weren't able to do that. And, you know, reflect a little bit upon kind of like what happened to the band after Brightside and what you guys thought and what the reality was. What I wanted out of the band. I mean, as soon as the record come out, I wanted to go support it. I wanted to play as many shows as humanly possible, but it wasn't in the game plan for, um, for Anthony who had decided that he was going to stay, um, stay in school and he couldn't afford, um, leaving for long periods of time because of his, his education. But it was the only thing that was on my mind. It was the only thing that I was thinking about for, you know, the, the you know the years leading up to it that you know why why wouldn't we do this why wouldn't we go all out balls out on this and, and have as much fun as humanly possible and Anthony was the reality that kind of just squashed it you know and there was bitterness at the time about like why you know why did we go through this why are we doing this and now that I look back on it you know he held to his guns. He did what he wanted to do. He thought what well, what was best for his life, but there was, you know, there was, uh, wasn't a lot of fun after that point. You know, when we were kicking around on the East coast playing a uh, show here and show there, there was always the itching of why, why are we stuck in this one locale? Why can't we, you know, just go out and, and shit never come back, you know, as, as all I felt like at the time I had absolutely nothing else going on in my life at that point, you know, I didn't have any other um, plan except playing music for as long as somebody would let me play music for. Um, it was, it wasn't until, you know, I started learning this stuff and this is way that uh, this was going to go, that I had to, you know, make alternate plans and figure out uh, some, some other way I was going to get through this because I, I wanted to, uh, you know, I wanted to do it with this band you know, it was something that's always, I mean, we were writing, I was writing the lyrics, close friends, 
meeting every week or sometimes two times a week to practice this stuff. It was, you know, pretty all encompassing my, my entire life at the time. So to kind of, uh, put it on hiatus was, uh, depressing. A lot of bands did their demo and did their record and they never did anything else again. I don't think we thought that's what we would do, but in some ways that's what we did. I mean, we didn't, we didn't plan on, uh, uh, no one ever, we didn't have a manager. We didn't have an agent. We didn't, we didn't have any designs on going on tour, but then as soon as the record came out and it, good, we started to get some, some people writing about it, some people playing it on the radio and people, you know, spending their money and buying it and people coming to the shows and coming to see us play. Um, then suddenly the record label was like, Hey, you know, overkill needs a support band or like oh, I got, there was others. I remember that one specifically. I don't know why, but um, yeah, at that point, you know, I was like, Oh wow. That's uh it was shocking. But at the, at, at the same time, it was instantly like, Oh, well, yeah. Well, what the fuck else am I doing? You know, you know, I, anything else I'm doing, I could put on hold, you know, it was, it, it was the one thing that was clear to me was that, you know, with breakdown, we s- came out of nowhere and managed to like, you know, kind of put write a, a demo that, 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 that caught a little bit of fire. And like, you know, we went from playing a, 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 a church social, so to speak, to like, showing up at CB's and like suddenly everyone there knew our lyrics and it was, which was shocking. And then, you know, months later we're doing the same thing with, with, with raw deal and it's getting even bigger. So, yeah, I mean, sure. I mean, when we started getting offering, offering those tours, I, I, I was all in, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, I probably don't feel, I mean, you're probably, when you're talking to Drago and I, you're probably talking to two guys who probably felt similar, you know, uh, but you're not everyone in the band felt that way. And it, and, and it was a bummer and it was, and it, and it was depressing and, and, and it was depressing not only for us, but it was, it was depressing for the people at the record label. I mean, you, you know how it is, you know, you're a record label guy your whole life. When you, when you invest something in a, in a band and it doesn't just, you know, come out like a wet fart when, when it actually, when the record comes out and people are actually stoked and buying it and like, you know, like eager to like go see the band and like, it's, you're excited too. So like the people at the label were like, when we were like, no, we're not going to go on this tour. No, we're not going to go on that tour. They were like, Oh God, what, who are these fucking guys that we signed? They're like, yeah, what are you, what are you going to do then? You know? (laughs) I mean, they, so, they spent all this money for us to record up there. They, I, I, we went overtime. We had to go back, right, Carl? Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, we spent a lot of money problems. recording that silly record. Yeah, and, yeah, and, and I, you know, and, and I'm, a, I'm being the being the being the degenerate gear and guitar nut that I am. I probably spent a bunch of money on fucking amplifiers or something, which people ended up you did. You <laughs> <laughs> so like and then and then after this thing is all done and they 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 spent all this money and and went over budget we bring this fucking thing in at 27 minutes right <laughs> falling, falling 3 minutes short of uh LP status i guess is the way that they put it 
and it had to be released as an extended EP or some shit, but they were pissed about that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. If we had known, we would have done three minutes of feedback at the end of the fucking last track. <laughs> so, so yeah, all that happens. And, you know, and then that's, you know, you know, Drago said before, you know, sometimes we love each other. Sometimes we hate each other. When, when all that came to bear, when like, you know, we had an album that people liked and we had tours coming in that people wanted us to go do. And we had a, and we weren't doing the tours and we were pissed at each other, and the label was pissed at us. It didn't. It didn't. It didn't last. Uh, it didn't last much longer. And I, I don't think we made it. I don't think we made it into 90, 1991. We probably broke up in nineteen ninety. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, but uh, you know, we were writing new material at the time. We were like, you know, we, we were still trying to do it. But like, just the, the, you know, the the cross purposes that we're at and the, and, and the, and the, and the different goals everyone had just were, were not tenable um, for us to, 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 uh, to continue playing together. So we, we, you know, I think, uh, I don't know. I've, I've, I feel like I remember playing it. I remember playing at Lemoore's. I don't know who we were playing with. Maybe Drago knows, but like, I just remember being so fucking, so, so, so completely fucking disgusted that I was like, I, I remember, I remember that show. I don't remember who we were playing with, but yeah, I remember the show and I remember we were all, all at the end at that point. Me and Anthony got into a big fight about something. I broke something on the drum kit. I fucked up one of the songs and it turned into a big shit on stage. There was a lot of that. So, yeah, so that's it. See ya. See ya. Nothing to do here. Nothing to do here. Done. Over. Fuck you. All right. Fuck you. Um, and but then, but that's what happens with killing time. You know. Then then what? It's not even two years later, and we're like, oh, let's go to Europe. They want us to go to Europe. Let's go to Europe. Oh, let's record these songs. Happy, All right, hold on. So let's let 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 me get a little bit of so so. This is where I want to kind of flesh out the middle period. So you guys, you know, have this, you know, ha- your relationships, you know, start to de- degenerate within the band for various reasons, whether it be touring, whether it be personality based, everybody just is getting sick, sick of each other. And eventually you call it, you know, call the game. You know, Luch, you move to the city. Right. And you start playing in some other bands. And you got to go on tour, you know, for 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 a little bit. So talk about some of the other stuff you did in that, you know, short hiatus between, um, you know, killing time come kind of the the return and the and the and the and the and the first return of the band, um, you know, the happy hour thing. And then in Europe. But what did you do in the middle? I mean, I was working, but I, you know, I've been playing in. I've been playing in bands consistently, you know, since since breakdown started. You know, I mean, there were always some other bands. You know, I mean, I I I, I had a band where I played with the guys from Killing Time. We play also kept playing together without Anthony. I had a band called Mind's Eye. I played with the Kanzanari Brothers and Electric Frankenstein and. You know, we 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 put a couple of records out, toured Europe a couple of times, toured toured the U.S. and uh, 
So, I mean, I, I, you know, I continue to, I continue to play and continue to play, you know, to this day. I mean, uh, but the pull of, 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 of killing time was, was strong. I mean, you know, I mean, I, right now I played a, I played a band called Kings Destroy. We have four records out, you know, uh, recently Drago and I joined up, uh, with, uh, with uh, a friend named Derek that wrote some killer hardcore songs, and and, and we did a we did an EP uh, called uh, the name of the band is called Gordita Beach. Um, you know, I have another. Uh, you know, I I, I have another uh, hardcore band uh, uh, called Dread with with uh, with Davin from Eating Eating Alive and Lars from Judge. You know, that's kind of on hold because of COVID. So I mean. I, you know, listen. I play guitar. I play in bands. I play music. I do it. I mean, that's just kind of that's kind of uh, something uh, that I I, I I I always did and always uh, will do as long as I, as long as I, as long as I'm able. Um, but you know, with 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 the killing time thing, you know, it's like we talked about the, the Lamore show and how shitty it was. I mean, the reason it was shitty is because we had opportunities, you know, we had a trajectory, we had things that were being offered. We had a path laid out for us. And instead we were trying to cling to the same things that we, we had been doing the two years prior. So it, it was just, it, it was just, implo- it was just burning out and, and imploding on itself. You know, we weren't, we weren't, we weren't looking ahead. We were just kind of trying to trying hard to stay in the place that we were in because it suited different people's band in the band's uh, uh, um, lifestyle. So, and you know, and, and like you know, the music scene in New York, like like there on that time was fucking killer. You know, like so. I mean, there was just so- right. Well, that that's part of it. Like New York had changed, right? Like so. Talk like that. That's the thing is like you know, I moved downtown. I was running earache at the time. You know, I, nasty little man was in the office, literally in the same office as us. Like there were hot and cold running indie rock bands all over the place. You know, hardcore scene, hardcore scene marginalized. Having the benefit of hindsight. Around the fucking country, man, hardcore was just like fucking kicking into fucking gear in, in 91, 92. Shit was fucking starting to really fucking happen. But like, you know, because of that, like, because of that interruption, because of all the violence, yeah, hardcore got derailed in, in, in the early 90s in, in, in New York City. It got split into two scenes. Um, so... I think hardcore was was pretty damn viable. It just happened just in in New York. The scene just got so kind of fucked up with all the all, all the other forces that came in. Yeah, I mean, scenes were springing up around the country. I mean, New Jersey kind of exploded. Cities in Pennsylvania or out in Long Island, where they were really just kind of you know starting to grow like saplings in a forest from a bigger tree in New York. But like the original tree in New York was kind of you know. In decay, but all the satellites were growing around the country. Yeah, and the scene in New York lost its clubhouse. You know, I mean, if there was no CBGBs, 
where was the hardcore scene going to be the hardcore scene? You know, who, where, what, 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 where, what sidewalk were we, were we all going to stand on on, on Sunday? You know, right. yeah. Where were we? Gonna, where, what other club would just let us stand outside for an entire day and go see one band? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and of course there was ABC No Rio, but like, you know, those. People didn't want any of the any of the any any of the like New York hardcore Mark II bands. They they wanted to have their own scene, you know. So like that wasn't the that wasn't the hardcore scene of like of of uh, of sheer terror and uh, and killing time and sick of it all and Gorilla Biscuits and Youth of Today, you know. And you know what happened to a lot of the bands, a lot of these bands that I mentioned right in right there, you know, they started touring. You know, they were all over the world. So that became their life. You know, they were they they were New York hardcore bands, but they, you know, they weren't looking to be at CBs every Sunday. They were out doing their thing. But like Killing Time was still stuck in New York where, you know, CBs had closed down and shit was all fucked up. And uh, yeah, it seemed like it seemed like the hardcore scene was dying. But yet, you know, there was New York was on fire with so much cool activity in music and all kinds of art that it was just you know there were other things to direct your attention to so you guys were you know you had you know we both had new york as our playground for like the city as a as a playground for like 2 years and then i don't remember whether it was you know everybody decided that you know hey you know we have this couple extra killing time songs let's do it and we did Happy Hour, which was a little bit of a musical departure from the original kind of bright side sound. But still, nonetheless, I still feel it's killing time, even though, you know, Anthony might have felt it was, you know, not on Sunday. <laughs> um, and you guys did that EP. And I think it was before you guys were offered Europe or simultaneously offered offered to go to Europe. I don't really remember the timeline again because it was such a, a short blip. It was right um, around the same time because... You know, as they like to do in Europe, you know, you absolutely need to have you can't just tour. You need to have a product to tour on. And so there was the extended version of Happy Hour, which included uh, the some of the stuff from the second Raw Deal demo. I don't know, maybe some other. I don't know what whatever it was on it to flesh it out. So it, it was right around the same time. I think we might have started doing the Happy Hour before we uh, we heard about uh, about the Europe thing, which would have yeah, made sense. I remember, I remember doing the layout for Happy Hour um, on the kitchen table in your in the in the house that you and Steve Murphy lived in in the Bronx. Like I distinctly remember kind of doing that back cover, like the party's over kind of thing. You know, you guys are on this hiatus. You record. Uh, happy hour, which theoretically would have been your swan song, but then you get invited to Europe and then kind of this, you know, you had to do some hot swapping of different members. So talk about how the Europe tour came about and then kind of, you know, your experience during that time, because it was definitely different than the original kind of lineup of Killing Time. Yeah, well, at, at this point, Rich had switched to guitar because there was some... <laughs> we went through an original thing with rich for a little bit that he was wanted to get off base. He wanted to be the second guitarist in the band. He wanted us to be a five piece. 
And the rest of us weren't having it for a while, which kind of led up to Rich leaving and then us getting Alex Kapoyan for the happy hour um, release. Um, Alex was never really into the band at all. He had his, his own thing going on. Um, he was, he was into it at the very beginning, but, um, he, he, he had too much, he had high aspirations for his other band, um, at the time. Um, when we got offered the tour, you know, we definitely went to Anthony and said, you know, come on, this is something that, uh, we all want to do and it'll be great. We'll go out, see the world, play some tunes, have some fun. Um, but he wasn't having it. So I don't know exactly how we decided or, or reached out to Dave or if Dave reached out to us, but Dave Franklin from Vision filled in for vocals for the entire tour. And at that point, Rich had moved to second guitar and we brought Lars Weiss um, in on bass for, uh, for, for that tour. So there was a, the band looked completely different. Oh right. yeah. And then Carl, you, 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 you talked a little bit, you know, in another conversation about, you know, how the expectation of people in Europe of what they got versus what they might've thought they were getting was a little different. Oh God. I mean, yeah, they were certainly, I mean, f- you know, from the, from the look standpoint, you know, they, they were certainly looking to get a couple of, they were looking to get some, a pack of like, you know, kind of closely cropped, shaved kind of hardcore kids and, you know, what they, what they, uh, what they got, <laughs> what they got looked like, you know, a bunch of extras from the movie singles or something like that. Like they, really, <laughs> they got like, they got a bunch of dirty long, they got a bunch of dirty long hairs. So, uh, and uh, and of course, you know, you know, in the New York, in, in, in the United States, a hardcore set is at least at the time for a band bands that are of 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 our uh, of our stature was 30, 35 minutes. You know, forty minutes, forty five minutes. You're wet. You're pushing it. You're over the limit. But over in Europe, they wanted us to play for like an hour, an hour and fifteen, sometimes more than that. So, you know, we had to pad our set with all kinds of covers, too, which kind of, uh, you know, our, our choice of covers, you know, probably probably irked some people, too. I mean, I'm sure we had, like, a negative approach in there. Um, but, you know, we had some other weird covers uh, in the set. Would you play, like, Dinosaur Jr. or something? Like, how how, like how crazy did it get? Pretty, pretty damn close. <laughs> Well, listen, we played a minor threat cover. We played some black flag covers. We, I think we played a negative approach cover. Um, we played. Uh, yeah, there was even a there was a super chunk cover. It was like there was a song at the time we liked called Slack Motherfucker, which is you know, <laughs> we played that song. Um, we think, you know, I, you know, listen, I mean, we played some. There were times when things were weird, like, you know, like in some of the in some of the countries where they weren't so so into like the purity like like it went in, in Germany like these people knew they knew New York hardcore they had seen all the photos they had they had listened to all the records they had read all the fan scenes that they knew what was going on but like you know once you roll into like you know a place in the countryside of Spain or you know, are like, you know, in, in Italy where, 
you know, people are just kind of a little more freewheeling and just want to hear music. Those nights we probably broke out some even weirder impromptu covers. But, you know, I mean, for the most part, yeah, it, it, it wasn't, it was nothing like, it was nothing quite like seeing Raw Deal at CB's in 1988. You know, not from the standpoint of the looks of it, but, you know, from the sound when we played our stuff, it sounded like it sounded like Killing Time. It sounded like Raw Deal, and I, and I, you know, the people I've there was certainly a lot of people that were that were shocked and unhappy. But you know, as we, as I've gone back there over the years and met people who are real music fans, they remember it fondly. So like, and you know, we had like, I really really wish Anthony would have come. He was on the verge of coming. Um, last minute he bailed out. But you know what? I mean, Dave Vision was a guy who we were like best friends with the first time we ever met him, playing probably, probably like Killing Time and like uh, and Vision playing in Rutgers, in New, Jer- in New Jersey, or something like that. And to go well, on, they were part of like the trifecta of bands that would tour together. Oh yeah, well, so- yeah, forget about Rutgers. We did that thing in California together, where it was like where it was Vision, sick of it all. Raw deal, and we did that like. Um, uh, oh, the EP. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, we were like we, big Frank. We, yeah, we it was we were like you know we we were like we we were tight, and we had a really. That was like oh you know musically that was like a, one of the stranger like uh, um, killing time lineups, but like we really had a blast that time. We really we really, uh, and I thought we played really well. But, and you know what? It's like that was 1992. Listen, I, I really would love to get over there uh, and play just one tour, one short tour with, uh, with, with, the, with the lineup we have now with Anthony and, uh, you know, let, you know, the people um, over there who still want to see us get a chance. And, uh, you know, maybe 2022, maybe we'll make it, uh, you know. Maybe we'll make it. I'd, a, I'd, I would love to get a second shot at that with, with Anthony. Yeah, maybe it'll. Yeah, maybe it'll be a thirty a thirty year anniversary. But you know, like yeah, that was a great that was that was a great tour. And and you know what, uh, Killing Time has gone to Europe subsequently with other with other other bootleg lineups just because you know like people couldn't go, you know. But uh, yeah, I, I I've got no regret. I've got no regrets about uh, about that about that tour. That's who we were at the time, and that's what we gave people. Yeah, I mean, and I can imagine that you guys also like part of touring and part of playing all these shows. At least for me, was always about the hang. Yeah. Right. And even going to CBs was part of it. wasn't just going to the show. It was, you know, taking the train down from Fordham with Crespo. It was. You know, going to go eat at, you know, Mamoon's or Veselka or Kiev, you know, after the show, the ritual of going to like some records for a while or then going walking along all the record stores and, you know, Bleaker Bob's and all the stores that were on on 8th Street. Like it was an entire it was always an entire full day. And when you got to be able to do that with your friends anywhere even just like going to a coffee shop somewhere else with a bunch of other lunatics, that in itself is, 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 is fun. And you almost live for the road trip just as much as you live for the show. Right. Right. Totally. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I distinctly remember you guys, you know, one of the, the better shows later, you know, um, was when we all went to Miami. Oh, that was fantastic. And, you know, I remember, like, you know, one of our friends had this opulent hotel room at a beachfront, like, high-end resort. And... (laughs) It was... And and, and there was a special guest staying there, too. Wasn't there? Was it it, it Hoboken's finest, Billy D? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was another... Well, he didn't... But he didn't make it to the show. Why didn't he uh, make it to the show? (laughs) He he, he, uh, he, He had uh, too much fun in the afternoon. Cabernet. He had too much Cabernet, I think. That's, uh, you know... um, But I remember, like, you know... In the pool at this place, swimming up to Drago, and I'm like, this is fucking great. And then Drago just being like, you know what's going to ruin all this whole thing? The show. <laughs> no true, no true <laughs> And then we had to slap to, like, the shittiest side of town. I mean, it was fun. It really was. But, like, the idea of, like, having this whole day getting half in the bag with a bunch of your friends – sitting around a table with guys you've known for like 25 years and then having to pack your shit up and go to like some place where like, you know, someone's going to have a beer bottle cracked over their head. You're like, oh, I know. Really? I know. So like Time at the beginning work. of, at the beginning of 2020, we kind of, uh, we, we recreated that a little bit. We, we, and we went, we played that, we played down in, uh, in Miami, we played that same club. Um, Churchill's Churchill's. Yeah. But now for some, someone got badly hurt there. Go figure. Right. Um, so now like hardcore bands, they're not allowed to play on the stage, I guess, because you, you lessen the risk of someone flying off the stage and cracking their neck. So we played that we played on the floor at that, at, at that, at that, uh, club, like in January, of 2020 and it was just off the it was so off the hook it was it was uh it was a lot of fun and then we played a festival yeah. the next day and i don't even remember where that festival was tampa maybe. Yeah, do you think they ran actuarial tables to figure out that risk assessment <laughs> <laughs> i thought i was at risk playing on the floor there because like yeah people were getting there's ill good, like there's some good video of that of that show yeah it's That's yeah it was intense, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's like, you know, listen, we don't go, we don't like go do that many shows, especially like if they're not like festival shows these days. But like after we played that Miami show, all of us were like, yeah, let's come back down here again. That was that was a trip. <laughs> but like, I mean, think about how our personal aesthetics have changed have changed from being like, all right, I'll sleep on this floor. Like this dirty, shitty floor that I don't know what's wrong <laughs> on it. To being like, I don't want to do that. I'd rather fucking drink at the hotel bar with a bunch of my friends. Like it's just that kind of like evolution, and you don't even know what's happening because the idiots that you're around are the same idiots. It's just that you know everybody has jobs now. Yeah. <laughs> and then you know. I, I, you know, it's just funny to think about like some of the road trips, especially because like for a long time, Uppercut were almost like your baby brothers. Right. Especially like, you know, partners in crime, you know, all, you know, 
Steve went to Fordham. Sefchek went to Fordham. We were all part of like the the the, the Fordham hardcore kids kind of group that would you know make the pilgrimage on Sundays from the Bronx to yeah to see these. And then you know we you would do a lot of road trips um, with Uppercut. And, and also outbursts became kind of a fixture on those road trips too. Yeah. Um, a little bit sheer terror later, but I distinctly remember this episode in, were you part of the episode in Boston where, where the, the, where like we stayed in this skinhead girl's house and she wanted to kill us. Were you on that? No. Were you on that? Show? That was, that was a uh, uppercut only event. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I'll discuss that. I'll discuss that with Murphy. Yeah. Yeah. Do you are you ever surprised by the reaction that like people who are not really hardcore people have to the sound and anger that's in hardcore? Like, you know, when you showed it like a video to your parents or whatever it is or your parents or your family came to a show where they, you know, what was their reaction? Well, my parents would never understand. My dad was when we when we put out Brightside and it actually came out, you know, on compact disc or whatever. Um, he was shopping that shit around to all his friends in the neighborhood. You know, it was one of one of the things he was like, you know, my son was doing this band. And all of a sudden there was something fucking tangible in his hand, um, you know, signed to a record label. And he was he was, uh, I guess, the, the most proud I ever made that man in my life, I guess, was when when we when I handed him that recording, but as far as the music, he wouldn't listen to it. Neither would my mother, uh, neither would anybody, everybody kind of just, you know, they like the music. They were, they, they love the drumming. Let's put it that way. Uh, but the, the whole essence of the hardcore sound, the vocals, um, is something that they can't sit down and listen to even to this day. You, <laughs> you know, like, I'm, I'm definitely my father's son, and I, you know what? I think my dad liked it. I mean, <laughs> I think, I think he liked the chaos of it. Like, 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 uh, I, I remember him watching it. He's like, "What is? What's going on here? <laughs> these guys are jumping. These guys are bare ass naked, jumping all over the place, screaming, fuck! <laughs> like, 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 I mean, he acted like he was appalled by it, but like, I feel like he was really." abused by it you know um so i don't know i mean a- anytime i bring a norm into a hardcore experience like to you know basically to come see me and my band play they usually come away kind of like knocked out by the kind of level of energy that's 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 out there um you know, if I had brought them to CBs in 1990, 91, where shit was fucking ill, they'd probably be scared out of their wits. But like, you know, it's like, I mean, for the most part, people, people just kind of get off on the, uh, uh, on the energy of it. And you, when you see me playing on stage, I'm laughing half the time, you know, we're playing the angriest music, like, you know, but I, I love the chaos and I love the, I love the energy of it. And it just, uh, I don't know. I think that I think some of the people that I bring around that are maybe not hardcore people to see hardcore, they kind of 
they kind of have that 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 they kind of they kind of key into that kind of enjoyment aspect of, of it. Do, do you? I mean, it's so weird to think that, like, you know, what would life be for? Like, how boring life would be without this cast of lunatics that we know, right? How, how crazy would it be? Amen. You know, <laughs> you know, and you know, all of us. You know, me with the label and, you know, dealing with the bands all the time, you guys, you know, playing all these international tours and whatever, you know, we got to see the world as kids because of this loud, angry music. And we made friends all over the fucking world. Like not too many people have that opportunity. So people can shit on it all they want. But the fact is, is like, there's a certain part of it that everybody wants to be a fucking vagabond. And we were able to do that to a certain extent. These bands are the only reason why I like travel out of New York. You know, I, I've seen, um, you know, I've been everywhere with this band. I mean, it, it's my group of friends. It's my closest group of friends that I've ever had and never will have. I mean, because we've been together for fucking 30 years. Um, you know, it's, I wouldn't give a, a second of it back because I, I mean, any, any time that I, I think of something hilarious, it's, it's, it's always band related, but you know, <laughs> when, whenever I think of something, you know, that I just want to feel good about it's, it. It always leads back to the band and this group of guys, no matter what, I mean, we've been through so many different uh, phases in the band, you know, uh, you know, in love with each other and hating each other. Um, but you know, there's not not a group of people I'd more rather be around than the, the, the same dudes that have been in these bands for the longest time. Sound design and mixing for Mad at the World is by Brad Worrell at Soundweb. Illustrations for each episode are by Christian Minnick. You can follow his art at Cortoons on Instagram. And if you like what we're doing, follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter at BlackoutNYHC, and on Facebook and YouTube at Blackout Records. Got a comment or a suggestion for us? Hit us at matw at blackoutrecords.com. See you next time. Watch out. Love and competition.